We are in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. That's page 1011, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, the flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. We're back in the same text as last week because uh, we took time to, uh, to share a bit about the week that had preceded us in VBS and some of the things that God had, I think, accomplished through that time. One of the things we did is showed the video of the week, and if you didn't get to see that, I think there's probably means that we could get that to you to see it. That particular week, as we said last week, we were able to, to, to touch about 160 children and uh, had about half as many staff here. And one of the things that I just increasingly feel a, a, a burden for is to make sure that we continue to let the broader body um, see all of that. Much of that ministry, had we not shown it, some of you wouldn't have been aware of. The elders spent... Um, a considerable amount of time this Thursday night just talking about some of the stories that were behind some of those children that were here and some of the things that happened during the week, the things that God, I think, did in the hearts of those children in the lives of their parents and those kinds of events. And so I think it was profitable for us to take time to do that and to spend some time talking about that, the children sang for us. But all of that caused now for me to be back in the same text this morning that we're going to look at. But let me bring you up to where we've been in the book of James. We're walking through it if you're, if you've not been with us thus far this summer. And we began with the, the admonition in James. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. Um, I hope that you've been doing that. I hope that you have been thinking about that. That when difficulty comes into your life, that you think about this text, count it all joy, because it is not not purposeful. One of the things that James talks about is that suffering and difficulty and the pressures that come are purposeful if we're God's children. They are not without purpose. And the purpose, it says in the text as we've walked on, is that we might, that God might produce in us perseverance. And a perseverance that continues to be built in us so that we come to the point of being complete and lacking in nothing. That we have a stability about us and about our walk with God. And that's what those things do. And God admonishes us, count it all joy. Now there are times when you're going through it and you've learned to count it all joy, but you still wonder, what, what do I do? Which way do I turn? What does God have for me? And then the text goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, but it, it, it is asking or admonishing or giving that admonition in the midst of the context. Now, certainly that text can have application to other parts of our lives. When we lack wisdom, we should go to God and ask him. 
But in this case, when it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, it is being spoken in the context of various trials, of being in difficulties that you maybe don't understand fully and you don't know what to do. And so you ask God to give you wisdom. I shared um, when we went through that text about the person, I was visiting with a person in the parking lot in the midst of the drought. And we were talking about the fact that farmers have to make a myriad of decisions. And I said to you, one of the things that I, I, I've learned in an agrarian society is that just to pray that you would have wisdom to make decisions because the way things change, economics change, weather changes, all of those things, you have to make a myriad of different decisions and to make the right decisions. So to pray that you would be able to make the right decisions But as I was sharing that with that individual who affirmed that to me, um, he got a call on the phone from somebody offering to help in a situation where he was asking for wisdom. It came then. I didn't know that's what had come. The phone rang. We broke up the conversation. I came in for VBS, and, uh, and he later came back to me and told me that in that very moment, God was extending wisdom for him. But the scripture says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. But it says to do it in a certain way. And what does it mean that we don't do it in a double-minded way, in a kind of divided way, that we must believe that God, as we ask in faith, will give us wisdom? What does that look like? I think what it looks like is that we continue to believe some key things about God. We spend some time talking about that. First of all, we believe it seems like a simple thing, but we believe he is God. You know that's the definition of sovereignty, don't you? That he's God. There's none above him. And that he is in charge and nothing catches him unaware. Nothing. He never, neither slumbers nor sleeps. Nothing escapes him. That's the definition of God. He is God. And he's aware of all things. And he's sovereign over all things. Nothing can thwart his purposes and his plan. And his plan, secondly, that we know is that he has chosen to put his favor upon a people. He has chosen to do that, not because they are favorable, not because there was something in them that caused him to be moved toward them because of something in them. Rather, he chose to do it of his own volition, to to put his favor upon a people, to save a people. And in saving a people, it means that he went from being their enemy to their friend. The wrath of God is no longer being stored up against them, but rather his goodness is being extended to them. His favor is being extended to them. He is for them and not against them. That's what it means to be one of his people, one of his children, and that he rejoices to do good to us. That's what it says in the Old Testament about the new covenant promise that we have a God who rejoices to do good and will do good. And so we need to believe that he's sovereign, that nothing nothing surprises him and that his, his disposition toward us is our good. When we ask, do we, do we believe that? Or do we have attitudes? God, you're just not taking very good care of me. Why did you allow this? And, and it's a, an affirmation that we don't believe in his goodness, that his 
goodness is toward us and not against us. And how do we stoke that in our lives? How do we continue to make that a part of our asking, of our wisdom, is that we just go back to the gospel. That is the promise of the gospel. The promises of what he says in his gospel to us, his good news, is that his favor will be toward us and for us continually. The scripture says in other places, if we ask God for bread, he's not going to give us a stone. If we ask him for fish, he's not going to give us a serpent. He works good for his people. He rejoices to work good for his people. And so I think double-mindedness comes in in asking but not believing that he is God and believing that he is for us and not against us. That whatever he is working is for our eternal good and we can rest in that. And no one, no one will rise up against him and thwart that purpose for us. You need to stoke that in your life. That's why I think the gospel is for believers as well as unbelievers. Certainly unbelievers need to hear the gospel, but we need to hear it. We need to hear it daily, the promise, because there's a world and an enemy of our soul that wants to speak the opposite to us when difficulty comes, when trials come. He wants to say the very opposite of that. He wants us to distrust this God. He wants to eat our faith in a gracious God. And that's the foundation of Christianity. The foundation of Christianity is that you have faith in a gracious God, a loving God who is disposed for your good and not your harm. And if you're having trouble with that, you need to just continue to go back to the gospel again and again and the promises and rest in that and say to yourself, as I have two times, Lord, this word is truer than what I feel right now. It is truer than my feelings because you've spoken it. So I'd encourage you. I would encourage you to to begin there. But then it goes on now in the text. It goes on and he turns in verse 9 and he says something about a lowly brother. He talks about the rich and the poor. And he contrasts those two things. What's he doing here? I think he's giving us an example of the wisdom that he extends and how he extends wisdom to us. So here he, he gives some wisdom in, in the text through, the, through James. He's talking about wisdom in this circumstance, wisdom and dealing with wealth and poverty. And in this particular case, he is speaking encouragement to those Christians who were mostly poor. There certainly were some that were not as destitute as others because he contrasted and he speaks to them as well. But the majority of the people that James is speaking to were destitute. They were exiles. They'd been put out. Many of them had been scattered by the stoning, probably the stoning of Stephen when the church was scattered. And so they were in difficult circumstances. The majority of them just didn't have much. And so what he's doing now is saying, how should they respond? How should these Christians respond? What kind of wisdom should they have from God in the midst of the difficult circumstance that they have. What wisdom does God offer to them, if you will? And that's what I want to talk about. Talk about this text now, that kind of wisdom. First of all, I think the wisdom that he talks about here and and describes in that context for them is that the poor, the poor, not just poor in spirit, we're talking about the poor, the destitute, these Christians, the majority of them, 
if they're in that circumstance, what I think he's saying to them is that they are actually spiritually advantaged because of their poverty. The poor are spiritually advantaged. I think that's what he's saying. And he says, let the lowly brother, let the poor, the lowly brother, boast. Let him boast in his exaltation. What he's saying is that you should see your poverty not as a weakness, but as a strength. You're to boast in it. Now, in most cases, we're not called to boast in things, particularly in ourselves. Scripture doesn't say it very often, but here it says, boast in your poverty. Why would he say boast except there was some advantages to that poverty that they were having a hard time seeing? And you can understand that. I'm sure at times they were thinking that it was the result of God's displeasure, that they had done something, that we'd done something. Why are we in such destitute circumstances if in fact God is for us and not against us? Why these circumstances if, if we live in the light of the promises of God to do good to us? And so what he's saying here is part of him doing good to them is their circumstance. It gives them some advantages that people who are not in that circumstance don't have. It's not because God is displeased. It's not because of his displeasure. You know, folks, that we live in an incredibly, maybe you don't know that, we live in an incredibly unusual time in light of Christianity. In the 2,000 plus years of Christianity, we are an anomaly in the West. Most of the people who have named the name of Christ through the centuries have not been wealthy people. We live in a bubble that distorts. We live in a bubble in the Western society today that distorts sometimes these kinds of truths. But the truth of the matter is the majority of God's people through the centuries have not been affluent. Certainly not to the level of affluence that all of us have here today in America. So we have to be careful. Sometimes as you read a text like that, it's hard to get your head around it. The prosperity gospel, which you hear about, which we heard more about years past, prosperity gospel is dangerous. It only works in this bubble, and it doesn't work there. It's, it's a distortion. It, you, you can't translate that, that so-called prosperity gospel to any other time in history. It only fits in a Western kind of context, and it distorts the gospel. Remember that. You, we must remember that. We are in unusual times. And so as we look at this text, we need, to, we need to remember that. For most of the people who have read this text through the centuries, it is not as hard for them to grasp it. It's not as hard for them to understand that there's an advantage to the poor spiritually. Certainly these people probably looked around and were tempted to doubt God, doubt his goodness. And so James is speaking to them and all of the Christians 
from that point on. Remember, James was written early on in the church. It's probably the earliest book written. So that was written for all of now the centuries of Christianity and for the majority of those in those centuries just to, to understand that if, if, uh, if you want to boast, boast in your poverty. Boast in your poorness, literal poorness in that sense, because it has spiritual advantages. It has advantages. John the Baptist, it's interesting. Remember when he was in prison and he began to have some doubts rise up and he sent a messenger to Jesus and he, he sent that messenger to ask, are you the one? Are you the one? Remember what Jesus said? Go tell him the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor, the poor. Literally, he's not talking about spiritual poverty here, he's talking about poor. The poor have good news preached to them. I, I say this pretty strongly to you, this, this point I think he's making, that he's saying that you have a spiritual advantage because of your poverty. Boast in it. Don't see it as a negative. See it as a positive in this context. Part of it's because I, I come across people at times who, who want to say that, that Christianity is just a crutch for the poor and the uneducated. Just recently I was with somebody who began to infer that it's, it's for the poor, it's for the uneducated, but as soon as they get enlightened, as soon as they get more education, then they begin to see that it, it, it isn't what they thought it was and, and they debunk it out of their lives. That, that's pretty prevalent thought today. It's just, it's just because you're poor that you want to believe in God. He's a crutch. That's not what Jesus said. He said he brings good news to the poor. He brought it to them. They were spiritual advantage in that sense. The second thing that he says, not only are the poor spiritually advantaged, he speaks that to those people, but secondly, he says the rich need to beware. The rich need to beware. I think that's what he's saying. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich boast... The word isn't there, but he means that. The rich boast in his humiliation. The rich need to beware. There are several reasons why we need to beware. And I say we, as Western Christians, we. First of all, there are greater temptations that come with it. There are greater temptations that come with richness versus poorness. That's why the poor have an advantage in many ways. Certainly the poor are tempted to some things. It's not that they're beyond temptation and they need to fight those temptations. They're temp- tempted to envy. It's, it's easy for someone in those circumstances to envy somebody else and want something somebody else has to the point that they begin to deal in flattery to get it or any means they can to get it. They may, got, as, as these people probably did, doubt God's favor. There are certainly temptations when you're in the circumstance that the majority this letter was written to. But there are greater temptations, I think, for the other side of the coin. Much greater temptations. Let me, let me share a few. There's a temptation, I think, to arrogance. 
One of the things that wealth does, it, it can tempt us to arrogance. It can tempt us in, in maybe, maybe explicit ways to look down on others, but maybe in more subtle ways to look down on others. We can just subtly kind of look down on those who aren't as advantaged. And we can write it off to things that we shouldn't write it off to, laziness or lack of initiative or whatever we want to write it off to. We need to be careful. It can lead to disgust. We can, we can have it move us, I think, if we're not careful. And one of the dangers of it is it leads us to disgust of other people. I remember a few years ago, this was quite a while back, um, I knew of a family that, that had been helped. They needed financial assistance. They needed help. In fact, we as a church had helped them. And then I remember being in a store, in a store in Aberdeen, and I remember running into this, this family not long afterwards, a mother actually and children, not long after we had helped them fairly substantially as a church. And I remember my eyes just kind of glancing into the cart as I was visiting with the mother, asking how things were and the circumstance that they were in. And my eyes fell upon a DVD in the cart. And my initial inclination was to think, we helped you and I think you genuinely need the help, but I'm not sure this is the best use of the resource right here in this cart. I thought it. It went through my mind. I think I was wrong. I think part of what it was was that subtle ways in which sometimes we can look down on those less fortunate. Now, certainly there are times when people in those categories can be guilty of spending money where they ought not to spend it. But what, what was really happening is I didn't understand fully the circumstance they were in because many people who are in those circumstances, many people who are in the circumstance this family found themselves is that they live in a circumstance where they have very little and, uh, and so they view money differently in many ways. In fact, one of the things that they find happening when they live in a circumstance like that is if they accumulate any money, it just, it just gets taken away by the needs. The needs are so overwhelming to them that any money that gets accumulated, any money they attempt to save just gets knocked out from under them because they can do it so slowly, so incrementally that it makes no difference. And so one of the things that I think happens in those kinds of circumstances is they, they look to more immediate gratification things, to relief in the midst of the enormous pressure that they feel. And what I think that was happening there is they were just alleviating some pressure that was intense, incredibly. What I wanted to see was the DVD. What I didn't see was the pressure. What I didn't see was the enormous burden that even as they accumulate a little, it just gets taken away. It just gets taken away because they're so behind that nothing works. And to try to save in any way just doesn't accomplish much. Now, certainly we can have other arguments. There are things you, you could critique and all of that. But the point I want to make is we sometimes can, can not even meaning to do it, let disgust kind of rise up within us. And we don't understand, because we don't understand the circumstance, we don't understand where they live because we don't live there. We don't. 
And then I think worse yet, it can, it can, it can cause us not to notice at all. I mean, I noticed that day. But the sad thing is, oftentimes wealth causes us not to notice at all. We don't even see the cart because we don't even see the people. That's a danger of wealth. We can get so removed from where they really live, where people live, where brokenness is, that we just don't even notice it at all. So arrogance can, can enter in to our lives. Wealth can cause arrogance, subtle arrogance, maybe blatant. It can certainly create pride. Pride can rise up on our, in our lives. We can begin to pat ourselves on the back to think we just did some things different than they did it. And so that's why we're where we're at. We begin to take credit for those kinds of things. Look what I've accomplished kinds of things. Pride is always dangerous. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly dangerous thing. And I think wealth causes us to be more prone to pride. It, it certainly can. The Bible says, and we're going to come to it in James, God opposes the proud. That's an incredibly strong statement that God opposes the proud. God help us. God help us to be careful about wealth. I think it can lead to a ruthlessness at times in the lives of people, maybe in our lives. In fact, the book of James is going to deal with that as well, about treating your workers and not paying fair wages and that kind of issue. But ruthlessness can kind of rise up in that arrogance and pride and ruthlessness. I think it can lead to faith in themselves, in ourselves, rather than in God. We think our faith is in God, but actually we have something to catch us if God doesn't come through. You see, the advantage for poor people is that there's nothing to catch them. If God doesn't catch them, There's nothing else to catch him. Sometimes we can pray, but we kind of know what's going to catch us. We kind of have something for a rainy day if God doesn't come through. I think you understand that. So again, to, to really trust him, what does that really look like for us who have wealth in Western society? And then the, the, the thing that I see the most, again, I'm, I'm taking some time to unload maybe a little bit this morning, but one of the things that, that I see the most in the danger in our society is that there can be a dangerous independence in wealth. I've watched it for 40 years in the church, in the church life, that that wealth can cause a dangerous independence in the lives of people that causes them not to fully connect to the body of Christ, to kind of live at arm's length from the body of Christ because they don't need it or they don't think they need it. And, and it causes a dangerous place for them to live. I think we need to be careful. We need to beware. Beware of, of the fact that, that pride can and does cause greater temptation in some of those areas. Greater temptation to independence. Independence in the sense of not being connected to other people. And, and part of what being a Christian is, is being connected to the body of Christ. It also has other temptations, I think, or other, other things that make it more difficult. First of all, one is, is to beware that temptation is greater. 
Secondly, I think in this text, he says to the, to the wealthy, where he says, and the rich boast in his humiliation, what he's really saying is that one day there's going to be a mighty reversal. There's going to be a mighty reversal is coming. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and the beauty perishes, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. There's a mighty reversal coming. And certainly death is the leveler of it all, isn't it? It levels it all. It levels everything. That's what the text is talking about. And rich men will fade eventually. Even Rich and poor alike will die. And so the, the leveling will happen. The reversal will happen ultimately. And the scripture says it's coming sooner than we think. Here again in the text, it says the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Why does it say that? Is it, does it say all that to say that if we have wealth in America, we should just all go get rid of it all? And, and be poor because it's an advantage to be poor. I think it's saying it's an advantage to be poor. I think what it's saying in this text is just be aware of it. Be aware of it. Be aware of it. Realize the greater danger of it. Keep perspective in it. Understand that there is a mighty reversal coming. Understand it's coming sooner than we think. Be aware. Be aware and be careful to remember what we ought to boast in. What we ought to boast in is poorness of spirit. The scripture says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That God would help us to to continually, both rich and poor, are to work at lowliness of spirit. And I think what this text is saying, it's easier for one group to do it than the other. And both must do it. Both must do it. The way we enter into the kingdom is by being poor in spirit, by acknowledging our need of God, by acknowledging that we have a desperate need of him. No matter how much wealth we have, we need him. We need him. And one of the things that I think we must ask ourselves, particularly because most of us fit in category number two here, if not all, we are all enormously wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves, is lowliness of spirit becoming more and more pronounced in my life? If you're a Christian, it was there at one time. Because the entrance into the kingdom is by being poor in spirit. But the question I would ask you today, is it more pronounced today in your life than the day you came into the kingdom? Is God causing you more and more to see the poverty of spirit in your life? More and more to confess sin and acknowledge sin, more and more to acknowledge your need of God in your life. 
Or have you subtly begun there, but then began to rest back on other things and other props? And you see, for the poor, the reason they should boast in their humiliation is because they don't have any props to fall back on. They came into the kingdom by being poor in spirit, and as they walk in the kingdom, these people didn't have any place to, to land except God. The danger of wealth is we can begin there, but then we have places to land. And we can fool ourselves sometimes that we're trusting God. God help us. God help all of us. We're all in the same boat, aren't we? We all need to hear things like this. We all need to hear what James has, this kind of wisdom. That we're to boast in what? Boast in the fact that our dependence is on God. And he's enough. Is he enough for you? Is that where you rest? <clears throat> Is that where you rest? God help us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us. Help us as your people to hear the scripture, to hear the wisdom of the scripture, to, to not put our trust in the wrong places. And to the degree to which we are, Father, we would confess this morning. And Lord, to examine our lives, to ask us, are we in fact becoming more and more poor in spirit? Are we learning more what it is to to see our need of you and our dependency upon you and our sufficiency in you? Or have we subtly begun to rest in other things? Father, I think that's part of what it means when it says that we're double-minded and unstable in all of our ways. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to, to properly see what you've given us in the right place, in the right context, and use it in the right ways. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness. We are grateful for your faithfulness to us. We pray that you'll work in our hearts and produce more and more lowliness of spirit in us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing together a song that the children sang. We sang it this morning in Bible school. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's stand and sing. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built. My hope is built on nothing less Than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame But only trust in Jesus' name Christ alone 
stone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong, and the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love, through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. Text that we had this morning ended like this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, under the test of whether it be poverty or wealth. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Father, help us. Help us, whatever category we find ourselves in today, to look to you, to realize Father, the dangers of both and to come against those dangers, Father, and put our hope in you and not be double-minded. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.